Man. Well, there, as you can tell, so many amazing ministries taking place here at Christ Church in this Advent season. I really encourage everyone to go to that online bulletin, and you'll see all the things we just talked about and several other ways that you can connect in mission and ministry and just sign up for the things that you feel like would be good for you and your family. You can see over here we've got Christmas gifts. These were given through our angel tree. 160 kids were sponsored for Christmas gifts by you all. The majority of those go to uh, Rising Hope, to the kids that you sponsored there. Some of those are going to uh, um, Newington Forest Elementary, some kids there that otherwise wouldn't have Christmas gifts. Um, and before we look at God's Word this morning, I'd love just to have a word of prayer uh, for the gifts and for those that will receive it, that they may see Christ and His love through them. Lord God, just thank you for this Angel Tree Project, for the families and the children that will be blessed by this, for the ones in our, in our own congregation who are blessed by being able to share uh, of the resources that you give us. We, we just pray that as folks receive these, that, that they may experience your love and your grace through these gifts. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you take out your sermon notes, we are in our second week of Advent. Advent is that season of the year when we prepare for Christ's coming. We prepare by remembering that Christ is coming again. That's what Pastor H.K. preached about last week. Remember, we prepare to rem for Christmas itself, which is remembering that Jesus came in Bethlehem 2,000 years ago. And we prepare ourselves, our hearts, our minds to be open to what Christ wants to do in our lives today. Today we are looking at the story of John the Baptist from, John, from Matthew chapter 3 and the way that he prepared the way for the Messiah. He wasn't really preparing the Messiah, he was preparing the world, he was preparing Israel, and in a sense he's preparing us as we read it today for how Christ wants to work in our lives. And uh, the question I want you to think about this morning is this right here. Where are you looking for hope in your life? We're talking about the unexpected hope of Christmas, the unexpected hope of Christ. And I want you to think about as we think about that hope, where are you looking for hope in your life? What, what do you look for? What do you think will give you hope in life? What are you looking for for a better life, for a better 2023, for a, a, a better year? Where do you put your hope? What are you looking for for hope in life? Anybody feel like you could use a little hope? Anybody know a neighbor that could use a little hope, a family member that could use a little hope? We live in a world, I feel like, that has a relatively large amount of hopelessness. Anybody feel that? You don't have to raise your hand to that one, but anybody feel that hopelessness? There's, there's a, it feels like to me, just from talking to young people, talking to people in my community, talking to people uh, in, my, in my kids' lives, that there's, there's a, in, in today's day and age, there's almost a sense of despair in our world. There's a, there's a hopelessness. There, there's an anxiety. There, there's anxiety about so many things, anxiety about life, anxiety about health, anxiety about um, our futures, anxiety about politics, about the economy, about faith. And in a lot of ways, this anxiety is not irrational. There's a lot of things out there that create this anxiety, and many of these things are very real. I mean, we've just been through COVID. We, we've been through uh, in this inflation that we're dealing with. We've been through a, a drug crisis, a mental health crisis, gun violence, hate, racial tension in our country, caustic politics, et cetera, et cetera. If you open the newspaper any day, it will basically tell you why you should despair. If you look at your news feed on your phone every day, it will tell you why you should be 
hopeless, why you should be fearing in life, why you should be anxious. We live in an anxious time. And in that sense, our world today is not unlike the first century world that Jesus entered into. Jesus entered into the first century world, into ancient Israel, at a hopeless time in Israel's history. It was a time when Israel was facing political oppression. It was a time when they were facing uh, economic hardship. It was a time when they were dealing with uh, 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 a religious system which wasn't ministering to the average person. And, and it led Israel to a, a time of despair, of hopelessness. That was the time that God chose to enter into the world. Of course, there were people that had answers, people that pointed towards hope. There were the zealots. They put their hope in violence. They thought, if we can just put together a big enough army around a charismatic leader and we can drive the Romans out of Israel and we can kill our enemies, then the Messiah will come, then the kingdom will come, then we'll have the life we want. They were the zealots. Of course, there were the Pharisees. They put their hope in legalistic religion. They taught the people that if we just keep God's law or if we just do better about maintaining our interpretation of God's law, then the Messiah will come, then the kingdom will come, then our nation will have hope. And, and even people like Herod, the king, the royals of that time, they put their hope in, well, really hedonism and materialism. That they had given up their hope of establishing a true Davidic-like kingdom. They'd given up their hope of ever having any national sovereignty, but they still could live this lavish lifestyle by taxing the people and having this privileged position that Rome gave them. And they, well, Herod in particular, gave himself to hedonism and to excess. But the average person in first century Israel didn't buy into any of those false hopes. The average person in first century Israel just bought into despair, just hopelessness. Like today, most people just give up. They'd heard the stories that had been told for hundreds of years that a Messiah was coming. They'd, they'd heard the stories about God speaking to the elders in the past and God speaking a new message to us today, but they'd basically just given up. They hadn't seen the Messiah. 600 years had passed since Isaiah and the other prophets had prophesied about the Messiah's coming. And like so many today, they'd just given up. That was the type of world that Jesus entered into. That was the type of world that John the Baptist came preaching to. It was a, a world of despair, a world of hopelessness, a world of anxiety. And in the midst of that kind of world, the most unexpected hope came. Now, I want you to get this. As we talk about unexpected hope, the hope isn't unexpected because it wasn't foretold. And that, that's what we're talking about today. But, but this message of the Messiah coming had been foretold for hundreds of years. It's not unexpected because, because the people didn't know about it. It was unexpected because it was so extraordinary. It was so out of this world. It wasn't what anybody could have imagined, that God himself would become a human being, that the God of creation would enter into a manger in Bethlehem and into human flesh, that God would become personally involved in redeeming his own creation through his own flesh. That message 
was unbelievable. It still is. And so it's unexpected. I mean, we, we have churches all around this world and all across this country that every week are proclaiming that Jesus is the Lord and all, all the time, this time of season, is, is reminding us that God's coming to the world. But that idea, see, of God becoming one of us and now God entering in and living within us is unexpected because it's so extraordinary. Christmas, the Christmas hope is it's a hope where you least expect it. It's, it, it doesn't show up where you'd expect it to. And that's what we're going to find out today is that when Jesus is coming, even his announcement of his coming, even John the Baptist, isn't announcing it in a way, in a place, in a location that we expect. So let me read it for you, Matthew 3, 1 through 12. I'm going to read the whole thing, and then we'll just parse it out as we go through and look at the unexpectedness of the story. Matthew 3, 1 through 12. Now in those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is the one referred to by Isaiah the prophet when he said, and this is a quote from Isaiah 40, verse 3, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Make ready the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now John himself had a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was wild locusts, was, was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem was going out to him and all Judea and all the districts around the Jordan. And they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River as they confessed their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, he said to them, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee the wrath to come? Therefore, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not suppose that you can say to yourselves, we have Abraham for our father, for I say to you that from these stones God is able to raise up children to Abraham. The axe is already laid at the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into fire. As for me, I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, and I am not fit to remove his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand. And he will thoroughly clear his threshing floor, and he will gather his wheat into the barn, but he will burn up the chaff with an unquenchable fire. We're talking about the unexpected hope. And in this passage I just read for you, these 12 verses, I really see six unexpected elements of this announcement. I mean, it, I, I don't know if you felt this when I read it, but it's a strange story right? Anybody, when, when, when you heard me read it, if you're, if you're new to the Bible, I think it would feel like this even more. It's really odd. It was, we've been reading this over and over during Advent for, you know, as long as uh, we've had the Scripture. So some of us are kind of immune to that, that oddness of the story, but it's a really unusual story. It's got six elements that make me think, huh? The first one is, is this, that there, you've got an unexpected messenger, an unexpected messenger. John the Baptist is a weird forerunner, right? He's an unusual fellow to have coming before the Messiah. You understand in ancient Israel, not just ancient Israel, in the ancient world, before a king came to a town, a city, a location, they sent somebody ahead of them to prepare the way, right? If, if, 
the president, President Biden, were to go to a new city, what type of person would they send, the administration send, to prepare the way, right? That's the question. If Emmanuel Macron were to come to the United States and come to our own capital, what type of person would he send ahead to prepare the way? If Herod the king in the ancient world were to go to a town, what type of person? And so that's the idea of the forerunner. The forerunner gets everything ready so when the king comes, the people are ready. Now, if God wants to send a new king into the world, what type of person would he send before that king to prepare people for this king's coming? Well, in this case, a man who hangs out in the wilderness wearing a camel hair and leather belt and eating bugs and things created by bugs, right? Locusts and wild honey. Now, for us, you know, a lot of things in the Scripture seem weird, you know, because we're not in that culture. So part of us might think, well, then maybe that's just the way they did it. No, that is not the way they did it. This guy is weird. That's what all of them would have thought. Now, it is true that locusts are the only kosher insect written in the Torah, but this was not normal food in ancient Israel. This, we're supposed to read that and go, what? This is like the mountain man who's out by the river in the wilderness preaching. He's, he's strange. He's an unexpected messenger. Why would God send the forerunner to the wilderness, right? If, if President Biden is to go to a new country, the forerunner's not going to go out to pick the place. West Virginia to tell people, right? They're going to go to where the president's coming, right? If God's sending a Messiah into the world, why not send the forerunner to Jerusalem? That's where the people are. How about to the temple? That's where the religious people are looking for a Messiah. How about to the palace? That's where the king is. How about at least to Bethlehem? That's where he's coming. No, John the Baptist gets sent out into the desert. Who's he going to prepare in the desert, right? Who, who, who's he preparing out there? There's nobody there. And so it's an unexpected messenger in an unexpected place. Of course, there's a purpose to all this, and some of you I know are thinking that right now. Well, of course he sent John to the desert because that's what Isaiah said. 600 years before, Isaiah said in Isaiah 43, a voice crying in the wilderness make ready the way the Lord, make his path straight. So of course he had to come to the wilderness. Isaiah said it. But why would God want the forerunner to come to the wilderness, not where the people are? And I think the answer is, is because his job is to prepare the way for the Messiah. You see in the text, it says, prepare the way for the Messiah, make ready the way for the Messiah, make his paths straight. So in the ancient custom, you know, the king, King Herod, before he went to a town, he sent the forerunner. The forerunner came to the town and said, guys, the king's coming. Clean it up, you know. Make the road straight. Fill in the potholes. Make it easy so that so when they bring him on the cart and they carry him here, it'll be smooth. Clean up the town. Make it look nice. The king's coming. And so we get this same metaphor here, but that's not how we're preparing for our king, right? Not in the wilderness. 
What's, God, what's John preparing? He's preparing hearts. He's preparing minds. He's not preparing roads. This is the road. This is, the, this is where Jesus wants to enter. He's, prepared, he's saying, repent, be baptized, humble yourself, open yourself up. The kingdom of God is here. So it's, where, where's the kingdom of God? It's in our midst, but you've got to turn around to see it. You've got to repent. And so it's an unexpected messenger because it's an unexpected message. The second thing I want you to see is an unexpected approach. Everything's unexpected in this, in this passage, but like I say, John the Baptist is a strange fellow. It says in verse 3, Now John himself had a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food were locusts and wild honey. Why would he wear this clothes? These are not the clothes that the priests wore in the temple. They wore linen clothes, right? These are not the clothes that the that the Pharisees wore when they were in the synagogue. These are not the clothes that the king wore when he went to a new town. These are the clothes that are reminiscent of the ancient prophets. This is like what Elijah wore. Elijah is described as a hairy man who wore hairy clothes, who when he was running from the false king in Israel, he went out into the wilderness. And remember what happened there? Not only did he cry out to God, I'm the only one, and God had talked to him, but he had no food. And God delivered him food through the ravens who came, which is really disgusting, and brought food for him to eat, the prophet. Little bits of meat and stuff. It's really gross. I'll take the locusts over that, you know. <laughs> but John the Baptist is playing this part of the prophet. Everybody who saw him would have seen, oh my gosh, this is strange. Who does he remind me of? Elijah. And in fact, the scripture says that before the Messiah comes, the Elijah has to come. So they even asked Jesus, well, what about Elijah? Are you Elijah? Is Elijah going to come? Has Elijah already come? And, and Jesus says, Elijah already came. It's John the Baptist. You can't read it all literally. <laughs> when it says Elijah, it's talking about the forerunner, John the Baptist. John the Baptist is Elijah. He's the one that's coming before the Messiah. And so he wears this garment, this camel hair, this leather belt. He lives out in the wilderness. He's eating food that just is there for him, that God gives him. Nobody's preparing this food. He's just picking it up and sticking it in his mouth. It's an unexpected approach. It's supposed to say to us, oh my goodness, the Messiah must not be coming to the temple, to the Pharisees, to the king. Messiah is coming to the outsiders, outside. That's where John the Baptist is, in the wilderness, people that are left out. It's an unexpected approach. The third thing you see is an unexpected audience, and this is what we're talking about in verse 5. It says, Then Jerusalem was going out to him, and all Judea and all the districts around the Jordan. This thing got so big that thousands of people were coming. It's like a day's walk from Jerusalem, but they're coming from all over Judea, all over. They're all coming to hear John the Baptist. He becomes incredibly popular. He's like the Taylor Swift 
of the first century. If Ticketmaster had been around back then, you couldn't have gotten a ticket. You would have just been locked out. But fortunately, there was no Ticketmaster. So everybody came, and they were all hearing this guy. And it was amazing. The audience showed up. And the response is amazing. This is Roman numeral four, the unexpected response. Look at verse six. And they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River as they confessed their sins. This camel hair wearing, locust eating prophet is having this massive response. And people are coming, and they're being baptized They're repenting of their sins. They're preparing their hearts to receive the Messiah. So much so that even the Pharisees and the Sadducees, it says, were coming out and they wanted to be baptized. But the most unexpected thing in the story is what happens next. It's the unexpected warning. And you see this in Roman numeral five. It says in verse seven, but when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, he calls them snake babies, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. Therefore, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not suppose that you can say to yourselves, we have Abraham for our father. For I say to you that from these stones, God is able to raise up children to Abraham. The axe is already laid at the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown in the fire. If you can imagine... The regular people are coming out, the desperate people, the hopeless people, the people that are, 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 are just grasping for something, and they're hearing John say the Messiah is coming, and they're coming, and they're saying, what do I have to do? And they're being baptized. Regular people are coming. But then all of a sudden, from Jerusalem, the Pharisees, they're the religious leaders. The Sadducees, they're the other. These are two different camps of religious leaders, two different theological interpretations. They're, they're all coming out to hear And the amazing thing is, is the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they want to get baptized too. Now, we don't know why. Did they have a genuine move in their heart or they try and do it so other people will see them do it or what? But they're coming. And John takes such a caustic approach to them. As a a pastor, it's hard for me to even understand, right? I mean, he's got a really good thing going on. For, for a pastor, this is the dream without the locust. This is the dream. He's got, he's got the riverfront pulpit, right? He's got this massive congregation that all love him. They're, he's got baptisms one after another. This is, this, is, this, is the, this is the big dance for the pastor, you know, for the preacher. This is, this is the dream. And then the important people are showing up. The the respected people are showing up and they come and they want to be baptized. It's amazing. But look at his response to them. He calls them names. These are like like me calling my district superintendent the bishop's names. These are the important people. And then he says, don't rely on the fact that you're children of Abraham. Don't think that that's going to get you ready for the Messiah. Well, of course, that's what they think, right? Who wouldn't think that? The covenant says to Abraham and his seed. Of course, that's what they're putting their trust in. That's what the covenant is. The covenant says it's to Abraham and his children. And of course, they're saying, we're his children. He's like, it's not going to work. Because God doesn't want just this outward form of relationship. God wants to be in your heart. God wants a change in here. God wants to live in here. And so he says, bring fruits of repentance. Bear fruit. Because every tree that doesn't bear fruit is going to get cut down. 
going to get thrown in the fire. And then the last thing you notice here that's unexpected is the unexpected promise. This is verse 11 and 12. For, I, for as for me, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who's coming after me is mightier than I, and I am not fit to remove his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clear his threshing floor. And he will gather his wheat into the barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. It's an unexpected promise, right? The promise is that this king that's coming is not just a king, right? He's not just going to be a Davidic king that's going to rule our nation. He's not just a savior who's coming, who's going to set us free from Roman rule. He's, he's God himself. He's God coming down in the flesh. And not only just is, is God himself coming to earth to give his life for us, but now he's giving his, his own spirit to fill us. He's like, I baptize you with water. This baptism, he has such a good understanding of his own place. John the Baptist says, this, this baptism of water, it's nothing. Me, my ministry, it's nothing. I can't, even, I can't even take his sandals off his feet. Compared to what's coming, this is nothing. Because when Jesus comes, he's going to fill you with the very presence of God, the presence of God that's in the Holy of Holies in Jerusalem, in the temple, it's going to be in you. And then he says, he's going to gather all of his wheat into the barn. And the chaff is going to burn with an unquenchable fire. Now, that's a judgment metaphor. And to understand these judgment metaphors, you've got to understand a little bit of the metaphor that's behind it, the story that's behind the metaphor. In ancient Israel, and probably most ancient agricultural communities, they used a threshing floor to prepare their wheat and barley and other grains, but this is about wheat. After the wheat harvest, the farmer would gather all the heads of the wheat, all the heads of the grain, and they would go together. This is like a communal experience. Every town had a threshing floor, and the threshing floor tended to be on the hill above the town because there was a breeze up there. They would take the grain at the end of the harvest and they'd go up to the threshing floor. All the men would go together. And all day long, they would use a stone to grind their, their, their wheat, barley, other elements. But this is, this is wheat. And, and, and then in the evening when there was a breeze, they, they would have it all ground up there. They would take this threshing fork and it's like a, like a rake. You know, they'd stick it underneath the, the, the crushed wheat and they'd toss it in the air and what would happen is that breeze would just blow off the lighter chaff that surrounded the wheat, and the wheat would fall back down, the grain. And so they, they do that for, for some time until all of the chaff was off. It would all blow off to the side. And then on the threshing floor, they would have their wheat. And it says that he's going to thoroughly cleanse his threshing floor. What that means is that the, the Savior's going to come and he's going to gather every little bit of wheat. He's not leaving any of us behind. All of us. He's going to gather us all in. 
And the, the farmer would put it in their sacks and they would take it home and they stick it in their barn. And it's so important to them because that's what they're going to eat on. Their family's going to eat off of that for the rest of the year, right? The, the, the wheat harvest doesn't come every month. And so they have to have this to, to eat through the whole year. And then in the evenings, what they would do is they would take that chaff that just kind of blew off and they'd gather together and they'd use that to help start their fire and stay warm at night. And they'd do this for a couple of days. And so the metaphor is, is that the judgment is that God's going to come and he's going to separate this fruitful part of his creation that's useful, that's good, that he created from the part that's, that's just bad. You know, it's not as many used to him. It's, it's chaff. It's just, it, it's, it's, not, it's not what he grew the wheat for. And the fact is, is that that's what we need. That's the unexpected hope of Christmas. That's the unexpected hope of Advent, is that every one of us, this is what John the Baptist is saying. It's not about going out to the river. This isn't about being baptized. This isn't even about repenting on its own. It's about the fact that we're preparing ourselves for this move that God's doing. God is sending his very presence, first in this baby in Bethlehem, and then through his Holy Spirit, into this world to fill us, to baptize us, to create a new life within us, to create a new kingdom, to create a new people a new temple that he fills with his presence, that God is coming to do this unexpected new work. He's not going to leave any of us behind. He's going to gather all of his wheat together. And all that chaff is going to be burned away. The truth is, uh, is that every one of us has chaff in our life. Anybody got chaff in your life? A, a chaff of selfishness, a chaff of greed, a, a, a a, a, a chaff of self-centeredness, a chaff of addiction, a, a chaff of hopelessness, a chaff of shame, a, a chaff of, of, of unforgiveness. We'll never be the wheat that God created us to be if we don't let him burn that chaff off. He's got to burn off that greed. He's got to burn off that selfishness. He's got to burn off that addiction. He's got to burn off that pain. He's got, to, he's got to get rid of that chaff so that he can gather us together into his barn. And the response to that is, come quickly, Lord Jesus. We need that. You know, the world is looking for hope. Like I say, the, their world and our world, it's a hopeless world for many but, but we tend to look for hope in temporary fixes that we hope are going to be permanent solutions. And, and, and so we, we, we keep thinking, if, if just this, then I'll be okay, right? As a nation, we think, if we just got a new administration, or if we just got a better economy, or if we just had better political parties, then we'd be okay, in our personal life, we think, if I just got a new job, or if I just got a new, my medications right, or if I just got a better therapist, or if I just got this new technology, everything will be okay. We just tend to think, if, if we could just fix this one little issue, then it'll be okay. But the thing is, is every time we fix that one thing, what happens? Something else breaks, right? Sometimes it breaks, sometimes something else that breaks. Because it doesn't resolve the, the big issue in life, which is that we're broken, our world is broken. Our kids are broken. Our parents are broken. The world is broken. And these temporary fixes never 
deal with that problem. Now, let me just say the disclaimer, because some people misunderstand the pastor. I'm not saying that a better political party or a better administration or a better economy or a new job or better meds or a better therapist isn't a good thing. I, I wish for, I pray for, I hope for, I have all of those things, all right? I'm not telling anybody, come off your meds or, or I'm, all those things are good things. What I'm saying is they're not the thing. And we keep thinking that if we just have that one thing, it'll fix it. The message of Advent, the message of Christmas is that God is entering into this world, that God is coming, that the kingdom is here in our midst, that what we need is a, a new kingdom, what we need is a new life, a new creation, that he's going to fill us with his Holy Spirit and presence, that he's going to burn off all the chaff, he's going to gather in all the wheat. That's what Christmas is about. That's what we need. What are you hoping for? Where do you, where do you put your hope? Or have you given up hope? Or you know someone has given up hope. Christmas is all about this, that hope where you least expected. There, there's, there's, uh, it's right here in our midst. Just turn around, you see it. It's coming. It, 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 it's entering this world. It, it comes in unexpected places, unexpected ways. But the hope that we're looking for is God himself coming into our lives. Let's pray that might be so. Lord God, we, we, just, we just thank you, Lord, that in the midst of a world of despair and hopelessness and anxiety, that, Lord, you're preparing a way, that you're, you're preparing us for something unexpected. You're preparing us for your very coming, for the presence of God coming into our lives for a, a judgment that takes away that chaff from our life, that judgment that gathers all of this grain to you, all this goodness to you. And so we just bow our heads right now and say, yes, Lord, make me ready. Help, help me to see this kingdom in my midst. Help me to turn my heart around and open it up to you. Help me to put my faith in this kingdom that's breaking in and this king that's coming. Help me to see this new life that you're birthing within me. By your grace, Lord, gather me into your barn. Make me your child. I thank you, Lord, that you're breaking through into our lives, into lives of hopelessness and despair right here in this room and online, into lives that have given up, into lives that have turned to these beliefs that, that through violence or through this or that, I can do this. Bring us to that place, Lord, where we can say, Lord, come and do this in me. Come and do this for me. Thank you, Lord, for Christmas. Thank you for entering into this world and into our lives. Help us to share this message of hope to this world around us. Come quickly, Lord Jesus, and come into us today, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.